This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. When migrants come into communities, they bring new ideas, new energy. They revitalize cities that didn't necessarily have a future. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin. Today, I'm excited to speak with Amy Pope, the Deputy Director General for Management and Reform at the International Organization for Migration, and is joining us as the current U.S. candidate for Director General at the International Organization for Migration. She's also joining us from an impressive trip to I think a dozen, possibly two dozen different countries. I don't even know how you do that with laundry and all the things. But so welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us from Baku. Yes, today I'm calling in from Azerbaijan. If it's Tuesday, it must be Azerbaijan. Yeah, exactly. And I just wanted to make clear that you're joining us in your personal capacity today. That's right. I am currently the U.S. candidate to lead IOM, so my reflections are my own. I'm not representing IOM in today's conversation, but what I hope IOM will be and my thoughts about why I want to lead the organization. Terrific. Well, so on the podcast, as our listeners know, we'd love to start with people's origin stories. So how did you find yourself working in this space and what drew you specifically to this problem set of migration? So I have to actually go back to my childhood. When I was nine years old, I moved from Ohio to Pittsburgh to a very Jewish community. And we were a Christian family. My parents actually were looking to start a new church in Pittsburgh. And we moved right into the Jewish community. And our neighbor was a survivor of the Holocaust. And it was not something that I really had understood very well at the age of nine. But moving into that community, hearing the stories of my neighbors and hearing the stories of so many people who became friends throughout my lifetime really, for me, called into question, how do we treat people who are being persecuted? What would my role have been if I had been alive at that time? And how do I play a role in making sure this doesn't happen again or that I stand up for people who are being persecuted? I then went on to ultimately went to law school and became a lawyer at the Justice Department in the Civil Rights Division. And I worked on human trafficking cases, police misconduct, and hate crimes. And it became very, very clear to me that, of course, the United States has a ongoing challenge in advocating for the civil rights of all people. But especially when it came to migrants, they remain the category of people with the least voice, who are considered to be the least worthy of protecting in terms of their rights. And I felt very drawn to what was happening to migrants. I prosecuted the traffickers of young girls, really 12-year-old girls who were taken from Cameroon to work as domestic servants in homes in Maryland. And it became clear to me that there was so much work that needed to be done to protect the rights of migrants. 
So that led me to working on the Hill. I worked for Senator Feinstein on immigration legislation, amongst other things. I ended up working for the Senate Majority Leader on a range of issues, including migration. I went to work eventually for President Obama on the National Security Council staff, where, amongst other things, I was responsible for issues like refugee resettlement, making sure that we had disaster response in the face of things like Ebola, ensuring that we were our own programs and information sharing and processes were as least bureaucratic as possible so we could have the most impact. And when, you won't be surprised to hear, I left the U.S. government in 2017, but worked with then-candidate Biden on his own migration policy. And I was eventually approached when he became president as to whether I would consider being the U.S. candidate to be the deputy director general at IOM. So my entire career has been focused on migration issues in some form or another, working within all three branches of government on issues of migration, both very, very local and international. How do you manage that tension between needing to get serious policy done on migration with all of the political stray voltage, let's call it, on this issue. And there's, there's so much emotion on all sides. How have you been able to focus and, and get the job done? Ultimately, I see migration as one of the most powerful tools that we have. It's a powerful tool for foreign policy. It's a powerful tool for development. It is the basis on which our own country has been built. And the evidence is overwhelming that even today in American cities around the world, those that are dying because manufacturing has gone away, for example, when migrants come into communities, they bring new ideas, new energy, they revitalize cities that didn't necessarily have a future. And so I really try to focus on where very pragmatically can we make migration work and recognizing that that is very politically can be very politically charged it's extremely important that you identify the key stakeholders so in some cases it's the private sector because they need migration in or at all skill levels in order to fuel their own growth or it's communities that are looking for you know, new people to come in to, as I said, rebuild Main Street or to really highlight and find very powerful human narratives about what migration has done in very positive ways. So my goal is to be very practical, but also to draw out the human experience of what it means to be a migrant. I mean, just one personal anecdote is that I'd say a couple of years ago, my father, who has a different political perspective than I do, and had heard a lot of anti-migration, anti-refugee stories. And we had invited a Kurdish refugee over for dinner and my with my mom and dad. And my dad actually just had this very human connection with this refugee. And by the end, my dad was really persuaded of the importance of the United States providing a safe haven for someone who'd been persecuted. So that's one tiny example. But for me, the more we can humanize, the more we can demonstrate the benefits of migration, the more we can sort of stay out of the political space, the better outcomes. Yeah. And how do you manage the tension 
between the, what I'll call pop-up crises. The one I, what I have in mind is Afghanistan and refugee resettlement with the yeah. longer term, because migration, internal dis- displacement of, of persons, this happens every day. And it's it's a mounting issue with climate change and all that. So, so I guess it's how do you manage the topical and urgent with those longer term bubbling issues? I have found that you have to use the topical and urgent as a way to drive forward policies that actually have impact on those more durable conflicts. So one example, I had worked on Central American governance and violence and community issues for years before we saw Central American children come to the border of the United States. And the experts in the field were saying, we need to do more to engage in Central America. We need to do more to respond to what's happening to communities there. But there wasn't much political will to do so. Then when 2014 happened and there was a wave of migrant children who came to the border, all of a sudden there was tremendous political interest in getting something done. Now, up until that point, we had been building a strategy for engagement and 2014 gave us the momentum to move forward with something that had actually been thought out in advance. Likewise, the situation in Ukraine has opened up channels to looking at migration in ways that there had been a lot of resistance to before. So you saw countries across Europe, in the United States, Canada, even Japan, everywhere in the world open up new channels to displaced Ukrainians. Those channels become models that can be used in other instances. You saw the United States do that recently by opening up a channel of migration for Venezuelans, for Haitians, for Cubans, for Nicaraguans. But the situation in Ukraine provided the moment to build something new. So it's important to continue to work on the long-term strategic outcomes you're trying to achieve and then use the shorter-term political urgency of the recent crises to help drive an outcome that will ultimately serve both communities. Well, to turn to the decision you'd like to discuss today. So since September 2021, you've worked for the International Organization for Migration, which is the leading intergovernmental organization in the field of migration. And you've decided to run, to lead the organization as as the U.S.'s candidate. So before we jump into your decision to run, can you tell us a bit more about the priorities and the purpose of IOM? Why should the everyday American care about the work the International Organization for Migration is doing? The International Organization for Migration is a unique agency in that it's the only UN agency that's working in the development space. It's working in humanitarian response, is working in peace building, right? And the idea behind the organization is to promote dignified, orderly, fair migration. And in the world today, we already see 100 million people who are on the move. And they're moving for a range of issues, right? We have conflict, we have community violence, we have lack of economic opportunity and poverty. And increasingly, we have climate change. We know that more than 300 million people are living in communities that are extremely vulnerable to climate change. And it comes down to the fact that 
if a person does not have a future at home, if they are not safe at home, if they cannot find food at home, then they'll migrate. That is human. And that is the story of human beings, really. And my view is that IOM is well positioned to work with member states and to work with communities to create better options for people who are extremely vulnerable. Not that we end migration, because actually I think migration, as I said, is a really powerful and important tool, but that we create more options so that people can choose to migrate rather than be forced to migrate because there's no other alternative to them. So I think increasingly, the last 10 years has demonstrated the importance of migration and a strong multilateral migration organization, I think, to communities around the world. But when we look to the future and we look at the displacement pressures that will only increase, it's increasingly important to have an organization that is well prepared to respond to what's coming. One of the things that we hear a lot about, at least in U.S. contexts, is capacity and capability gaps when it comes to these issues. I think it was the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends 2035 report. So it was published a couple of years ago. But and an interesting quote that there is likely to be a widening, yawning gap between the expectations of people versus the institutions that serve them. And so as migration increases with climate change, with all of these other exacerbating factors, how do you see the UN system, how do you see IOM's capability and capacity to address these things? So a couple of ways. Number one, I think we can and should be helping our member states to identify where migration pressures will emerge. Sort of anticipating, engaging on the front end. Climate change is an obvious one where we know already using data that's available, which communities are going to be most susceptible to climate change. We can layer that data on top of what we know about existing infrastructure or resilience of communities. And then we can include what we have learned within our organization about what causes people to move. And what emerges is basically a map of where we need to be engaging as an international community to build resilience or to find alternatives for people, right? And I've been in Somalia not that long ago in the Horn of Africa. We have over 3 million people who are on the move there. They've hit their fifth season of drought. Surely by season two or three, we should anticipate that these communities who are primarily agricultural communities or pastoral communities, if they can't farm or they can't feed their livestock, they're going to starve unless they move. So those are the places where we, I believe, as an international organization, have a responsibility to engage on the front end and identify interventions that might mitigate some of the pressures. But I also think that we have a responsibility to use our resources much more proactively. I mean, we can't predict every single migration pressure that will come. But we should have the agreements with member states in place. We should have, for example, stocks pre-positioned around the world. We were remarkable in responding to what happened to the earthquake in Turkey because we had an enormous warehouse that had been set up to provide support to people who had been displaced in Syria. But we should be using our data about what we know in terms of vulnerable communities to build that kind of capacity in places around the world so we can respond more quickly. 
that's the kind of approach I think we need to bring to the work we're doing. So why have you decided to run? Because that's not happening. (laughs) I joined the organization just about a year and a half ago. And I'll say, just I'll admit that I went in with a very idealistic sense of the United Nations and what we were doing or could do. And I've been shocked by the fact that that kind of proactive, predictive, strategic analysis was not happening in our organization. And I was shocked by the fact that there was a real gap between what the needs of communities are and what the needs of member states are and our leadership that was not engaging in a regular basis. I believe that when it comes to migration, especially because it's so politically sensitive, it's really critical that the director general be on the ground, be speaking to communities, engaging communities, engaging leadership within countries to put together solutions that are tailor-made for the challenges that those communities face. And you can't do that if you're sitting in Geneva. This is not an area where you can just write papers or come up with lofty principles. To do it well, it requires leadership that is on the ground and is engaged, is working hand-in-hand with the communities most impacted. And frankly, I just didn't see that happening at the level that I would expect. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so important to get to make progress to start getting these issues right not just for the human dimension which is obviously incredibly compelling and and the the moral ethical thing to do but also because the refugee crises internally displaced persons these are dynamics that can exacerbate conflict right and when you get to all of a sudden you're talking about endeavors and issues that are exponentially more complicated, exponentially more expensive to address. So working on these things at the front end and being more proactive. Right. Drilling a borehole for a community that is at risk of drought is far less expensive, but will save more lives in the end than responding when that entire community is on the brink of starvation and has fled their home. That's the approach, right? And I saw that in terms of my own work doing disaster response within the United States. We need to be identifying, predicting. And then when we respond, we need to build resilience into our response. We cannot address every humanitarian disaster as a brand new thing that is coming in isolation. Right. The process of reinventing the wheel every time. It takes a while to reinvent the wheel when we don't have time. We lose time and we lose lives, basically. Yeah. So you're on this multi-country trip. What are your observations, your takeaways from this? Because you've been all over, all over Africa, I think is is pretty fair to say. You're in Central Asia. You're going to be going to Asia, Southeast Asia. What's your observations right now in terms of where migration issues are and some of the hotspots that are, are keeping you up at night? So there are hotspots across the global south, frankly, and it comes down to what we're talking about. Who is the most 
vulnerable, especially to something like climate change? And who has existing capacity to respond? Who has resilience, right? So yes, a community in Florida is extremely vulnerable to climate change, but there is infrastructure and resilience within that community that does not exist if you go somewhere like Tuvalu, which is facing rising sea levels that threaten to destroy the entire country. So what I'm also seeing is that we are not sufficiently, as a UN, but certainly as IOM, we're not sufficiently engaging the voices of the people and the perspectives of the people who are going to be most impacted. So IOM, if we look at our own organization and our own workforce, about 10% of our leadership within our workforce is African. About 10% of our chiefs of mission are African. Likewise with South Asia, right? We are not seeing, even within our organization, a representative community of people, which I think is a mistake, right? So we do not have representation of most of the Pacific Island or or small island developing states. Those communities are some of the most at risk of facing climate disaster, We need to have in our workforce, we need to have in our planning, we need to have in our regular engagements, the perspectives and point of view of the small island developing nations, right? It's it's just logical, right? But we don't have it. So that is one place where for me, it's critical that we as an organization better reflect the people, the perspectives, the voices, the workforce of the communities that are really facing the challenges and can benefit most from the opportunities of migration. Mm-hmm. And when is the election? May 15th. May 15th, so coming up. So do you think that your gender as a woman has had an impact on your thinking leading up to, to running and to lead the International Organization for Migration or, or, the, or, the, or even your perspective on how you lead? Is your gender playing a role here or not so much? It definitely is. I mean, look, there has never, in IOM's 71-year history, there has never been a woman who's led the organization, which is extraordinary, right? And you think about migration for a moment and you think about who is impacted. And the perspective and the voices of women are critical to achieving solutions that are durable. And the experiences of women who are migrants is different. The vulnerability to sexual exploitation and abuse, the vulnerability when people are displaced, and by the way, the solutions that women can bring in terms of stabilizing communities, they're almost an afterthought to what happens within our organization. And it's not to say that I, just because I'm a woman, will ultimately will have that perspective of all women. That's not true. But I do think that as a woman, because I'm a woman, because I've lived in a society where women often come second, I am able to bring to the table the importance of reflecting the point of view of those who are not always heard, but whose experiences and contributions are significant to building a solution that will work. And I've seen it in just some really tiny ways. You know, I went to a displaced persons camp just outside of the Darien in Panama. One of the first things that was evident were that the bathrooms available to people in the camp were way at the back in the dark in a corner. And you think about it just for a second, how you would feel 
going to the bathroom and the potential for sexual violence that exists. For better or worse, that is a point of view that I and, and many, many women will bring to the issue set that is extraordinarily valuable in ensuring that we are protecting all people. Mm-hmm. And we had a conversation last year with Elizabeth Shackelford talking about a refugee camp in South Sudan. And one of the takeaways from that conversation is that there was a major issue along those lines, like sexual exploitation because facilities were in the wrong place. But because she was a woman, the women felt that they could engage with her. So it wasn't just yes. it wasn't just her perspective on the issues. It was her being a woman made her a reliable or trustable or more trustable interlocutor with the international community. I even hear that from our own workforce, right? Within the year and a half that I've been in the organization, the number of women who will come to me to talk about their own experiences working in the organization, women who will be posted to work in in very remote areas, speaking about being sexually harassed or assaulted when they're working and that they were afraid to talk about it before. Women who've come forward to talk about the ways they've been alienated within the organization have not had their voices heard. The stories I've heard have been extraordinary. And I think part of it is that these women, these colleagues feel comfortable and know that this is something that I can understand and relate to and will fight for. And so I do think that matters. I mean, we're working with the world's most vulnerable people. They are the people who do not have a voice. And in many, many societies, including the United States of America, it is often completely acceptable to ignore or denigrate them. And if we are working with those communities who are so vulnerable, it's important that we as an organization have the capacity to appreciate and understand and be advocates for them. And I do think that my own perspective, the perspective of so many of the women out there in the field demonstrate the value of having women in these positions. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for everything you're doing to give voice to the vulnerable and helping fight for their dignity and for communities to engage with them. Thank you for everything you're doing. And thank you so much for joining us on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you so much. It is my absolute privilege to do this work and it's my absolute privilege to run, to lead this organization. So I'm so glad I get to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. This Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin.